3: Oh,
4: yeah. It could happen here. It being a podcast hosted by myself, Christopher Wong, and the inimitable, inimitable, and Andrew. Andrew, hi. You're in charge today.
5: Thank you. Thank you. I almost
4: stuck that landing. I was so close (laughs) to not fucking it up. Are you guys proud?
2: I, I like love. Seriously, eighty percent of the I'm way there. I'm proud of you for con- being consistent, and by consistent, I mean that you fucked it up again. I'm proud.
4: Yeah, I shouldn't have tried to say inimitable. That was that that was always going to be a disaster. Yeah it, was, yeah, it was it was
6: it was it was like one of those gymnastics landings where it's like yeah. they they land it and then both your feet go in the ground and then they jump and they fall. Yeah, it's very That's impressive. Exactly stuff like that. Yeah, That's I'll give exactly you a beef buffer.
4: When I yeah. Well, <laughs> all right, Andrew. What do you 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 got for us today?
5: Right. So for this, um, this, this episode's topic, um, the story begins with Reddit.
4: Unfortunately. Oh God, no! no. (laughs) No. (laughs) I I saw. That's um, that's not a great sign.
5: (laughs) Well, Reddit and Twitter, yeah, the 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 two horsemen, (laughs) um, and the discourse that occurred on those sites. Uh, a while ago, um, particularly related to like infrastructure and infrastructure under anarchism, right? I mean, we all know the basic principles of anarchist society um, related to autonomy, allowing people to define themselves and organize themselves on their own terms. Um, horizontalism, you know, people are able to organize so that no one dominates anyone else. And no one exercises power um, over others. Mutual aid so that people are able to help one another voluntarily, their bonds of solidarity and, and networks of generosity that keep the social fabric together. Um, you know, free association that allows people to cooperate with who they want to and how they see fit, and also conversely, you know, refuse and disassociate when needs be. Yeah, that's
4: a key one that people don't emphasize
5: <laughs> Yeah, the free disassociation. Yeah, free definitely to not
4: be associated with certain people, yeah.
5: Yeah. I mean, because you can't freely associate if you don't have the option to freely disassociate. It's like running into a cage and then you can't exit. Everyone should be able to move freely as well. That's what Ancus emphasize, which is... I think one of the things that radicalized me most was um the existence of borders. Because to me at least, like when you're born, you know, you have this spawn point and it seems absurd to me that your spawn point should have so much control over, you know, the outcome of your life. You know, what rights and stuff you enjoy. And where you can and can't go freely. Because none of us have a choice in that matter. You know, you can't exactly choose our parents or choose our you know, neighborhood or or where we grew up, whatever. And of course, borders of the national kind aren't the only ones anarchists oppose, you know, um, we also oppose borders related to gender and race and citizenship and, well, that's related to borders, but, yeah. And so, how anarchists propose we get to this society is, first and foremost, the people liberating themselves, the concept of self-liberation. So, People and not even speaking just in terms of workers, you know, speaking in terms of gender and sexual minorities, uh speaking in terms of racial groups, um speaking in terms of disabled people, you know, they must be at the forefront of their own liberation. Freedom cannot be given, it has to be taken, and so through direct action, which is when we directly <laughs> act. Uh, without the middle channels of, you know, authorities, representatives, uh, we make those changes for ourselves, And through other um, methods, we pursue the world that we wish to live in, which is the whole prefigurative process of building the new in the shell of the old. And so I think part of the issue when it comes to discussions of anarchism and infrastructure and supply lines and all these different things is that... Um, I think people have this misconception, this, this real strange idea of what an anarchist revolution looks like, um, where, you know, we flip a switch just overnight and boom, anarchist society. We have nothing in place. We have no organizations or systems or networks in place. It's just boom, snap of fingers, and all of a sudden we're all living under anarchy. But in reality, um, you know, as Kropotkin expressed, There's no fallacy as harmful as the fallacy of the one-day revolution. Obviously, there's going to be a transition. Um, In fact, a lot of people like to define anarchism as an ongoing process, moving further and further towards the ideal of anarchy. Um, The whole idea is not whether or not there will be a transitional society, but what kind of transition that will be. And so in this period of transition is when we would be engaging in the different forms of social experimentation to... um, manifest, you know, anarchist principles in every facet of life. And of course, this is a process that will involve engaging with local conditions and um, local people and allowing those communities, those individuals, to determine for themselves what structures and, and systems are put in place. Part of the struggle is going to involve mirroring the society that we wish to create. So if our final goal is, you know, a communistic and anarchistic society, then our methods must be as communistic and as anarchistic as possible. Basic, you know, duality of, of means and ends. So when we speak of supply lines, when we speak of infrastructure, the reality is that existing infrastructure is not going to disappear overnight. We're not starting from complete scratch. This isn't a new, you know, Minecraft world that we have to go and punch some trees and start society all over again. Revolution is destructive, but it's also constructive and transformative. So, I mean, we're not going to get rid of all experts and all expertise. We're not going to be floundering to figure out how to make penicillin. You know, people in all fields in all industries in all layers and all... um, you know, backgrounds are going to be involved in the process, you know, adapting their workplaces, adapting their industries towards sustainable and anarchic ends. And it's a process that's going on now and will continue because if, you know, we look at, uh, at revolution as a combination of, I think, Eric Olin Wright, he had in his book, Envisioning Real, Real Utopias, three basic concepts of transformation. You had ruptural transformation, interstitial transformation, and symbiotic transformation. And so interstitial revolution is basically the idea, um, it's basically a mirror of, you know, prefigurative politics. It's a theoretical means of societal transformation through progressively and strategically enlarging spaces of social empowerment. And ruptural transformation is, of course, I guess the dichotomy between the insurrectionists and Everybody else, you know, where you have these moments of social outburst, these moments of rupture, where social forms and social developments are, you know, undertaken. And we sort of figure out how we are, or rather, we directly fight back against, you know, the systems that are in place.
2: just
1: being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th.
5: I think rupture is one of the more exciting forms. It's the kind of form of revolution people tend to think of. When they think of the term revolution, this idea of, you know, all these this this mass of people, this crowd of people storming the Bastille or whatever. Um, But the real work of transformation is the stuff that occurs, you know, prior to and post those moments of rupture.
4: Well, I, I one of the terms I tend to like that I've been thinking and reading about a lot is is shatter zones. And these are this is like the post rupture, right? These are the areas where state power kind of collapses, or at least pieces of state power collapse. And it's, you know, these the shatter zones where kind of you you see the state retreat in the wake of a rupture are where very terrible things tend to happen, but they are also these zones of possibility, you know? It's the places, it's the kind of place where you, you can get an ethnic cleansing, and it's the kind of place where you can get um, Rojava, you know? Like, it's, it's there are these kind of zones of possibility in the wake of of rupture, and I think that's... You know, a, a lot of the a lot of the revolutionary kind of um, imagery focuses on on the rupture, but the future is decided in the shatter zones. You know. Yeah,
5: and I think what people miss as well is the stuff that builds up to those you know shatter zones, which is that there are organizations, there are affinity groups, there are networks and structures in place that are able to support those zones, that are able to, you know, when those ruptures occur, support the people taking part in those fights and expand, yeah. you know, those zones of possibility.
4: Yeah. I mean, this is the kind of thing where, like, if you're looking at what what causes the difference between, you know, these disastrous, uh, like, disasters that happen kind of in the wake of a rupture, horrible crimes against humanity, and situations where something better gets built. Like Again, to use the example of Rojava, the reason why that happened there and why ISIS didn't win in that terrain is that groups of activists had been organizing in a variety of ways for years in that area. And so when the state collapsed, there were armed groups, and those armed groups were supported by farming cooperatives and groups of people who had been organizing to provide supplies to each other and um, like community or, organizations like focused on social like uh, uh, development and aid. Like there was, it's, it's, it's yeah. What there was an existing is, net in place. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that's, that's what. So when, you know, things fall down, you future. could catch.
5: Yeah. You yes. Could catch. Yeah. Yeah.
6: And, and I think that's also, there's, because there's, there's another way this can go too, where it's like you get a lot of moments where, you know, like like May sixty eight in France looks like this, right? Where like like the like the was it the prime minister or the president? I forget what De Gaulle was at that time. But it's like yeah, you, you you like literally like the country's leaders are flying out of the country on helicopters because they think everything's going to collapse, and it just sort of doesn't. And I think one of one of the ways you get you get this period that looks like rupture, but then everything sort of closes back up in on itself is if those networks aren't strong enough and you don't have some kind of sufficient level of organization like, there, there isn't, there isn't anything. It's like the, the it's like you get these moments where the state is discredited, but there's nothing to replace it. And then the, and the, the, the sort of void, the, the void isn't strong enough to just sort of like have the state collapse entirely. And so what you get is this moment where it looks like everything is going to change and then just nothing happens. And I think that's also a product of essentially the same thing. It's just depending on the strength of the state, you can get very different sort of outcomes from these moments where sometimes it's able to restabilize itself. Sometimes it isn't.
5: Right. Yeah. And I think we kind of saw that in a way with the 2020 protests Yeah, where you had this massive, massive rupture, probably the largest, one of the largest in American history. Um, You had people in the streets and cities all over the country. Um, Of course, the vast majority of them were just peaceful marches. But you also did have some, like, serious moments of rupture, like in Minneapolis and stuff. And, I mean, look at us. (laughs) You know, two years later. And while there are, you know, more community organizations, I think there are more people who are a bit more conscious, with more aware, who are, you know, radicalized and, expanded their knowledge through that rupture, things basically went back to the way they were in a lot of ways. And in other ways, you know, police budgets were just increased. I think there was a, I can't remember the analogy, but I'll I'll just go with the analogy of like a hydro, where, you know, the state, whenever it's attacked and stuff, it's able to just restore itself, just able to recover itself. And it's able to like adapt to those um, sorts of attacks. I remember reading in Dawn of Everything," where the Davids were talking about how the state they're using the example of the American state. they were saying, you know, the American state of 1900, right is completely different in a lot of ways from the American state of the 2000, you know because the, the state and statecraft is, is constantly evolving, constantly expanding constantly responding to, you know, the conditions that they face. We saw what happened in the 20th century, you know, the different movements that occurred in that time. The state was able to respond to those movements and adjust itself accordingly. And so, obviously, when we have these ruptures, we have these, you know, moments of struggle and obviously the times in between where we are prefiguring um, robust systems and alternative institutions that can support people in those moments of rupture, um, part of that isn't going to involve, you know, defense. And the issue is not, oh, well, how do you to defend revolution? Anarchists do want to defend revolution. They don't know how to defend rev- revolution. But rather part of defending it is defending it from people's attempts to seize power away from the masses, from the working class, to, you know, siphon that energy and use it for the ends of a smaller group, a smaller class of, you know, whether it be parties or whatever the case may be.
6: Yeah, and there's something there. I think going back to like thinking about borders and freedom of movement. Because if you look at like both the U.S.S.R. and China do this very quickly, which is that okay. So you 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 have the communist revolution, okay, and theoretically class and power. And then like the first thing they do is set up internal border controls. And these like like I mean in China that they, they're technically like the the, the the prohibition on movement is like technically over but the the like the, the household registration system still exists and it still determines whether you where you can get benefits and how you get benefits and whether you can live in a city and like what like how what social security you can access can you buy houses things like that and, like that kind of stuff if if you're not if, if if what you're doing is just putting a group of people in power and not actually Putting, you know, like if you want to talk about it in class terms, right, it's like, okay, either either the actual working class governs itself, like the class in the entirety collectively makes decisions, or you've just created a new like bureaucrat class. And if you wind up with a new bureaucrat class, it's like, yeah, immediately look at what happens. It's like, oh, hey, a bunch of people have now decided that you like you can't leave your home province because you don't have the right registration. And it's right. like, okay, this right. is like... And that which, that kind of
5: reminds me what you were saying about, you know, if all the working classes was, was members of the state. It reminds me of a video I was watching last night, actually, from um, this YouTuber, Anarch Daniel Barion. Um, and he was talking about, I believe, how the state is necessarily um, exclusive. If everybody holds power, then the state necessarily... Um, must be wiped out, must be wiped away. If not, it's going to try to reclaim its monopoly on power, its monopoly on violence. Um, It cannot exist without people under it, you know? And so, as, you know, we are engaging in this, as we are, you know, organizing strikes, creating networks of activists, creating assemblies, um creating, you know, self-managed schools and social centers and cooperatives and all these different forms of infrastructure that can weather and exist under capitalism, but serve as prefigurations of our potential beyond capitalism.
2: Pictures being
1: me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th.
5: And so I guess to pivot, um, back to the topic I was speaking of in the beginning with regard to infrastructure. You know, all of history books and stuff, general history books tend to speak of the government, centralized government, states and rising out of the need to build and maintain, like, these big infrastructure projects. They tend to use the example of irrigation. It's taken for granted, you know, it's taken as a given, that bureaucracies and such were necessary for organizing these large populations. And that while, you know, egalitarian principles may thrive on a small scale, they just cannot scale up when populations get any bigger than, like, a small band of people. But what we do know is that complex rural irrigation systems and Egalitarian urban decision-making systems have occurred in, you know, human history that our ancestors were able to organize those those institutions without the state, without a centralized body with a, uh, with, a with with coercive, you know, authority. There's also like this implicit assumption, you know, when people make these assertions, that societies must necessarily grow and endlessly grow and that we cannot choose to limit our scale in any way to avoid centralization, to enhance egalitarianism. You know, we can't scale ourselves down to more manageable levels, aka degrowth. Um, and as we've seen, that's just not true. You know, we are capable of making those shifts. You know, large-scale projects like irrigation or, or you know, supply lines and stuff, they do require coordination. But coordination is not synonymous with the state. Coordination is not synonymous with hierarchy.
6: Yeah, and that's something that's an inter- It's interesting to me the way people like how badly people think about that because, like, e- even 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 in terms of sort of like mercantilist trade, right? Like that kind of like long range coordination, long range like moving goods across the world has um, like it's. like mostly not been states doing that like it's you know and you you can talk about like okay whatever it's like it's however you sort of want to think about the market mechanisms here but like yeah like people have been people people have been moving stuff from one side of the world to the other like essentially without the state having anything to do with it for like as long as there have been people exactly exactly I think that's
4: one of the things that frustrates me most about the discourse about like any kind of post capitalism is this um this purposefully I think in a lot of cases like malignantly um inaccurate um attitude that like the idea of people like exchanging goods and services is fundamentally capitalist that the idea of people like organizing that the that like a factory right is something that has to be has to be either organized under capitalist models or under state socialist models, as Ankles, if like, Ankles, people have yeah, exactly. <laughs> as if people haven't done it in other ways, right? This is not theoretical. We're not like trying to posit, like, well, maybe it could work this way. It's like, no, motherfuckers have done this. Um, yeah, we have practical examples. Well. There's, there's even examples under capitalism. Yeah, you know? yeah, stuff like the Mondragon Corporation and whatnot. Like, it's not, um, it, it, like, it's this is not like theoretical stuff that we're talking about.
5: I was thinking more along the lines of what happened in Argentina. Yeah, yeah. You
6: know, those years ago. Or yeah,
5: well, even something I, going a bit further back as, you know, like the CNT, which I'll get yes. into yeah, in a little in bit. Spain, yeah,
6: yeah. like that's something. Well, I mean, I, th- I think part of what's happening there is it's like, yeah, like pe- people have run factories in other ways. And every single time they try to do it, every other political faction on Earth sets out, sets aside all their political differences and goes and tries to kill them. And it's like, (laughs) hmm, this this is not great. Yeah, that's
5: true. That's true.
6: I'm also reminded of the fact that, you know, part of what
5: happened and part of the issue that, you know, occurred in Argentina and has occurred elsewhere um, is this concept that I think Michael Albert um, talks about a lot, this idea of the coordinator class and the issues that arise out of that sort of coordinator class. And so I think part of, that sort of organization is going to involve confronting that. You know, we tend to think of it in terms of, you know, the capitalist ownership and getting rid of the capitalist, but there's, you know, a lot more at play than, than just just the capitalist. Hell of the firm is the firm. <laughs> I think there's also like this sort of assumption that people aren't capable of like taking any kind of, you know, I think there's this kind of weird assumption that, that people aren't capable of taking initiative, that people aren't capable of, of you know, um, seeing the needs around them and organizing to fulfill them. So when people end up, you know, trying to do these gotchas and stuff with anarchists, like, oh, well, how are you going to deal with garbage? It's like, people don't like garbage around them, you know, which is why we have a sanitation system, which is why we have garbage disposal systems in place. But, you know, under this system, because everything is, all the costs of, you know, our consumption and stuff are externalized and hidden. People don't have to think about the ways that, you know, our actions are affecting our local, um, you know, ecosystem. You know, we see that we, we pay other countries to, or at least like I can't say we. Um, the US, <laughs> the US pays other countries. I mean, we have a problem in, in Trinidad as well where all of our waste um, just gets dumped like right next to a mangrove. And there's a community right opposite the highway where the um, dump is located. And, you know, they they, they burn garbage there. And it's like the the burnt garbage, it's like a constant smell of burnt garbage around that community. And it's, of course, the most impoverished community in the country. And it's it's a whole thing. Um, But I digress. You know, when we aren't able to just you know externalize the costs of you know how we live communities are able to you know notice how to you know notice the problem and and figure out ways to handle it you know whether it be um small rewards people who volunteer to you know deal with trash um or you know just there's people who enjoy doing that as well you know um and the same goes for other undesirable jobs. Or, you know, people might decide to go on like a rotating basis. And the reality is, you know, we don't have to like define our lives around a career. So, you know, a person doesn't have to be entirely like a garbage collector. And on top of that, you know, with as we scale down the amount of garbage we produce, that task will become, you know, less and less necessary. Yeah. So, you know, with Waste infrastructure, people are able to take care of that. You know, we can't externalize those sorts of issues. Um, you know, with food infrastructure, you know, we're able to, like, for example, in, in the Taita Hills region of what is now Kenya, you know, people were able to create these complex irrigation systems that, you know, lasted hundreds of years before, you know, colonial states moved in and ended these agricultural practices. You know, the, back then, you know, the households would share the day-to-day maintenance of that irrigation infrastructure, You know, everyone would take care of the parts of the infrastructure that was closest to where they lived. And, you know, as it was commons, people enjoyed it in common. People maintained it in common. People benefited in common. People would also come together um, periodically for, like, major repairs. And it was a form of collective, socially motivated work that we see in many other, you know, decentralized societies. You know, I often hear um, conversations, or rather I often read about, you know, these different societies. And even under capitalism, you have communities that, you know, when someone needs somewhere to live, the whole community gets together and helps them build their house. And when someone else needs somewhere to live, you know, everyone gets together and builds their house and so on and so forth. You know, people are already doing this in parts of the world. These systems are already in place in parts of the world. These sort of reciprocal networks of, of, of support. Um, and I mean, whether you're talking transportation or power or communications or housing or food or healthcare, there's a precedent set, you know. These precedents may have certain flaws, but we could study them, we could learn from them, and we could establish something better. You know, for example, like as we mentioned earlier, in anarchist Spain, right, during the Spanish Civil War, Barcelona's medical syndicate, which was organized largely by anarchists, managed 18 hospitals, six of which they had created, 17 sanatoriums, 22 clinics, six psychiatric establishments, three nurseries, and one maternity hospital. Whenever they had a request, the syndicate would send doctors to places in need because medicine was considered to be in service of the community, not the other way around, you know? Funds for these clinics would come from the contributions of, like, local municipalities. And th- this syndicate um, had a health workers union that included 8,000 health workers. The union operated 36 health centers and distributed through Catalonia and provided healthcare to everyone in the region. And these syndicates would send delegates, you know, um, to Barcelona and they would be able to deal with common problems and implement common plans. But every department was both autonomous but also not isolated. So they supported one another where needs be. In, under the CNT, you know, we also see like lands being taken by peasant syndicates um, who would organize properties and allow the whole community to take care of, you know, their land and their animals and, you know, their crops as as needs be.
6: Yeah. There was something I've I've been, the more I've read about it, the more impressed I've been with the way that I I guess you would call it like, like the anarchists in Spain, like did basically did a universal healthcare program in one year in the middle of a civil war. And like, you know, and like the, I think the other thing about it that that was important is that like they they were able to like they they, they had this whole program that was about like sending like sending doctors into the countryside to get to like in, into communities that had never actually had regular access to medical care before and they were able to do this extremely quickly and had a system the benefits of which are like enormously better than like basic well, I like if you, you 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 can go find I'm forgetting the exact example, but like you can go find like their 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 policy for like how much time off you can get for like an injury and stuff, and it's like yeah, you can take you can take like six months, eight months off at like full pay, like uh your people like your family will be provided for, like they had, they had all of this just like incredible like healthcare infrastructure they were, they were able to set up like really really fast.
5: Yeah, yeah, because they also had, you know, these regional federations of different collectives and they were able to basically, you know, distribute surplus goods and distribute, as you said, healthcare and, you know, basically pool the infrastructure so that everybody, rather pool the resources so that everybody was able to benefit. You know, they often pooled resources for things where, you know, Areas were unevenly developed, you know, so that, you know, more um, developed regions were able to help other regions improve their infrastructure, you know, build roads and canals and hospitals. And so this, when I read about, you know, what happened in Catalonia, I'm not saying they were perfect. They definitely had a lot of issues. When I read about what happened there, you know, in the midst of a civil war, um, the possibilities that were present and what could have potentially happened further along um you know it's 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 very inspiring
6: yeah and and i think it it goes back to the sort of the 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 point we've been we've been talking about which is that like the the capacity to provide care for people and the, the the capacity to do stuff like this exists in our society, right? It's not something that has to be just sort of just like completely manufactured from the ground up. It's just that the capacity is not being used to actually like give, to people, benefit yeah, to people. give people what they need. It's like, well, okay, it's, it's not – it's, it's 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 less a, a, like a, a process of just completely reconstructing the society and more a process of like – Hey, why don't we use the resources we already have to do the things that are like actually useful? And people yeah. for some reason think that like exactly. stops being true if you don't have a state and it's like no. Like the state, the state <laughs> disappearing does no. not mean that every <laughs> single doctor suddenly vanishes from the face of the earth. Like
5: Yeah, it doesn't mean every single sanitation worker yeah. suddenly disappears, every single construction worker suddenly disappears, every single it's like every every you medical know, teacher textbook. suddenly disappears, every yeah, yeah. Like I said, we're not starting from like a new Minecraft world. You yeah. know, you don't have to go and, and kill the end dragon and all that. <laughs> but um, I mean, I guess that's a that's a good place to wrap up. Basically, we have these possibilities we always have. Um, and in a lot of ways, the state and you know capitalism and all these other um manifestations of hierarchy are holding us back. They're preventing us from reaching our full creative, you know, the full unleashing of our creative potential as people.
6: Yeah, and we should do that instead of this.
5: Yeah, we, we we should do this instead of that, you know? <laughs> Rather, we should do that instead of this.
4: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: Well, Andrew, thank you so much. Where can where can people follow you? I believe I believe you just put out a new a new video this week, if I'm remembering correctly. That
5: Yes. Um I don't know if they will <laughs> hear this episode before my next video is out. Um, but <laughs> um y'all can find me on YouTube.com slash andrewism and you can find me on Twitter at underscore Saint Drew. Awesome.
4: All right. Well,
3: Right Rug Flooring.